This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Are you left wanting more at the end of each episode of this show? Are these short sessions getting you fired up to try new skills for yourself and share the journey with others who are working through the same challenges? Well, the good news is that this podcast is only the beginning. The real action and learning is happening on the Regenerative Skills Discord channel, where you can connect with the whole community to dive deeper into the topics on the show, explore solutions, and share your journey and blooper reel with an active group that can't wait to hear from you. You can get your questions answered and share knowledge and wisdom of your own on a safe platform that, unlike the social media giants, won't steal your personal data to advertise to you in creepy ways. Ditch Facebook and join us where the real skill builders are. Just find the link to the Discord chat on the homepage at regenerativeskills.com. Hey there, and welcome back, everybody. Now, I've been lucky in recent months to be able to speak to people who've been leaders and change makers in the regenerative space for a significant amount of time. Building on that knowledge and experience, I got to speak today with Dr. Mark Nelson. Mark is chairman of the Institute of Ecotechnics, head of Wastewater Gardens International, and has worked for several decades in closed ecological systems research, bioregenerative space life support, ecological engineering, restoration of damaged ecosystems, desert agriculture and wastewater recycling, and notably, Dr. Nelson was a member of the eight-person Biospherian crew of the first two-year Biosphere 2 closure experiment between 1991 and 1993. That project included pioneering regenerative agriculture and waste and water recycling technology. And even before that, in the 1970s, he planted an organic fruit orchard at Synergia Ranch in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and has helped to manage its organic fruit and vegetable farm for decades. As an associate editor of Life Sciences in Space Research, he is also an author and contributor for numerous books, including Pushing Our Limits, Insights from Biosphere 2, The Wastewater Gardener, Preserving the Planet One Flush at a Time, and Life Under Glass, A Crucial Lesson in Planetary Stewardship, written by Mark and two fellow Biospherians. Now, I first planned this interview with Mark to focus on his work with wastewater management and gardening, but I quickly realized that it was only a small part of the work and the experience in his expertise. And as a result, we cover a lot of ground in this session, ranging from the work and the development of the Biosphere 2 installation, and what it was like being part of the research team who lived there for two years. And Mark also talks about his work and learning from decades of international ecological projects, including those focused on wastewater management, and how all these diverse places and contexts continue to inform the Ecotechnics initiatives. We also get around to focusing on his book, The Wastewater Gardener, Preserving the Planet One Flush at a Time, published by Synergetic Press. There we dissect the key considerations for safe harvesting and reuse of wastewater, and the potential uses of it in gardens and beyond. Making use of wastewater is becoming more and more essential as the energy-intensive and expensive methods of purification are quickly becoming unfeasible. Though people are becoming aware of this necessity and its potential, it's still going to require a lot more visibility to be adopted at the scale that it is needed. And so I hope that episodes like this will act as a catalyst to help get more listeners like yourselves to consider how using wastewater might fit into your own projects. I've also linked to where you can get your own copy of the book in the show notes for this episode. But for now, let's get to my conversation with Dr. Mark Nelson. Welcome, Dr. Nelson. Thanks so much for taking time. How are you doing today? Oh, doing great. 
We well, look, a there, beautiful fruit, fruit harvest here in New Mexico. What part of New Mexico are you in? Uh, we're just south of Santa Fe. Oh, okay. I used to work in the or near the Earthship community around Taos. I was wondering if you Taos, had any yeah. connections to that area. Uh, no, but uh, I, I know the people at Earthship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar objectives with some of the buildings that they go for there. Now, yeah. to get us started today, before we go into the details of wastewater gardens and some of the research and the projects that you've built, can you give our audience a sense of your background and how you got started with this line of work? Yeah, sure. Uh, in a nutshell, let's see, I was born in New York City, uh, born in Brooklyn, raised up in Queens, uh, son of Jewish immigrants from Poland and Russia, so first-generation American. Uh, got a scholarship to Dartmouth College and, you know, excelled, etc. but decided after graduation that I wanted to do something new. Didn't know what exactly, and through a series of fortunate uh, circumstances, I met a group that was starting to do ecological work out here in New Mexico, in fact. And then later we founded the Institute of Ecotechnics because the idea was that we knew enough about ecology that we would we would uh, work in challenging biomes of the planet and make practical, stand-on-the-loan, economically viable uh, endeavors that, one, solved ecological problems and tried to upgrade the uh, surrounding ecology. So after about 10 years here in New Mexico, I went to uh, our first ecotechnic project in the tropical savanna of Australia, way up in the uh, tropical Northwest. And uh, by this time, the Institute had built a ship. We'd done other biomic projects, also located a project in a world city in London. And then uh, we came up with the idea of Biosphere 2, a laboratory to study the global ecology and, you know, kind of learn the nuts and bolts of how biospheres operate by making a pretty grand experiment. <laughs> we we uh, made a virtually airtight facility that included a rainforest, a savanna, a desert, a mangrove wetland, an ocean with a living coral reef. And then because there were eight people inside and I was fortunate to be part of the first crew for a two-year closure. We also had to have a farm and all of the technologies needed to, to operate a, a research facility. So uh, the two years inside Biosphere 2 tie into wastewater gardens because among my jobs was I was the manager of the sewage works and the sewage works inside Biosphere 2 was this really beautiful constructed wetland, you know, with with uh, flowering plants that I harvested and fed to our chickens and goats and pigs. And it did a remarkable job of cleaning up the wastewater such that we could send the treated water back to return the nutrients to our farm. And that inspired me to go back to academia after oh, a mere absence of 30 years or so and get a master's and a PhD in ecological engineering and start to bring these systems, which I rechristened as wastewater gardens, because we wanted to one, create a wetland, but we wanted to make them beautiful. 
you know, things that hotels and businesses and homes, you know, would enhance the landscape and add to the beauty and doing it all with water that's usually just thrown away and which causes a lot of uh, health and environmental problems. Sure, and that includes a whole lot of energy put into purification or detoxification, even if we do clean it up, right? Yeah, you know, there, there's a good point, which wasn't, you know, uh, well, we were a bit of ahead of the curve at Biosphere 2, and we were worrying about global warming. But, you know, now I, I also include, and thank you for bringing it up, that Constructed wetlands are a low energy, because we're using natural functions, way of actually using, not just detoxifying and making safe uh, sewage. Sewage treatment plants are enormously expensive and use uh, incredible amounts of greenhouse gases, because typically, especially ur urban ones, you're pumping sewage from 20, 30 miles, kilometers to one centralized place rather than using the wastewater, enhancing the ecology, you know, closer to where it's created. Absolutely. So let's take a step back here and go a little deeper into these biosphere projects. So this was biosphere two. I'm assuming that means that was a first one. You've written, I think, two books, right, about your experiences in this, the two years that you spent there and, well, what lifestyle was like, what the uh experiments were right. about give me a, a, a maybe more in-depth overview of what the premise was here and what were you were trying to find out through this experiment and i, I love that you're asking that classic question where was bias for one <laughs> because it, it's kind of a trick question the answer is we're living in biosphere one it is currently the life support system of every human being and every microbe and every plant and every fungi and that that is the biosphere of uh, planet earth and it's a powerful engine that has spread life made the planet more habitable when we look at earth it's not a planet it is a planet shaped by a biosphere that's been ceaselessly you know doing its beautiful thing making new species for four billion years anyway so Biosphere 2, uh, and we, we named it that to underline because it's hard to uh, remember, but we started that project in 1984. You know, it was a pretty mammoth, ambitious project. So there was, you know, a lot of research for five or six years. And then we built this, it's basically one hectare of uh, airtight uh, space. Uh, and we sealed we sealed it and started a two-year experiment in 1991. And the purposes were kind of threefold. The first one was to make a laboratory. I mean, people who are not in the sciences may think that science has all the answers. But as every every real scientist knows, we've only scratched the surface of what, you know, our knowledge of ourselves, of our surrounds, of the biosphere, of the cosmos. And there's just so much that we don't know about how biospheres uh, operate. So one, it would be a laboratory for studying in great detail. Obviously, it's not a model of planet Earth, but because you can think of planet Earth as having these large aggregations like rainforests and, and savannas and grasslands, 
and uh, marine and aquatic uh, ecosystems. It, it was kind of an interplay of, of five of those, plus the human-dominated ones, the farm and the human habitat, our little mini city where we had our rooms and workshops and laboratories and, and entertainment. The second purpose was, I do think that uh, we have started on one planet, but life ceaselessly explores and expands. So I think that, you know, the great potential and, you know, the time frame is uncertain, but that humanity will take a biosphere and biospheric life with us into the great cosmos. And we're going to need to not just pack picnic lunches and canisters of oxygen. We're going to need to figure out how to make living worlds on other planets in orbit, etc. So this is a very early ground-based you know, attempt to find out what we know and what we don't know about how to build living support systems. And the third one, when, when you make an artificial world, a, a, a human-designed and created world, you have to substitute for a lot that nature provides for free. You know, we had to have a, apparatuses to produce waves and winds and, you know, the global climate chain, uh, climate climate environment that our biosphere does. So we knew that we would be pioneering environmental technologies. And the two that I'm most excited about is what we came up with for purifying air and making sure that we didn't have the equivalent of the worst sick building syndrome ever developed. <laughs> because compared to a, a modern, tightly sealed office or home, Biosphere 2 is orders of magnitude tighter we only uh, exchanged 1% of our atmosphere every month. So it was quite an extraordinary engineering feat that our amazing team of ecologists and engineers produced. Uh, and the, the other technology was that constructed wetland system for sewage treatments. And it was kind of revolutionary then, although it had been you know circulating for some decades. Now there are constructed wetlands and, and manuals on how to build them all over the place. Virtually every European country has manuals. The EPA has signed off because the wonderful thing, even though they look very simple, they're simple because they're natural. And natural systems have an incredible complexity that, that has been given to them. So that was uh, another really exciting technology and it spurred you know, my continuing involvement 30 years later with, with this. So maybe paint a picture for those who will never have the experience of being inside there and the layout of the place, right? You had models for the basic large scale biomes of the planet. Like you said, savannas, deserts, uh, different configurations of forests. And I'm curious, okay, so you are in an airtight building that encapsulates these. But what is the connection between these manufactured biomes inside? Are they separated or are they all open to one another? Well, we, we had some separation between what we call the wilderness biomes. That was the rainforest, savanna, fog desert, mangrove, marsh, kind of an Everglades system. And our little mini ocean with a living uh, coral reef that we collected off of Mexico. 
uh, because we didn't want some of the insects that were in those, those systems to uh, get into our farm and living quarters. But in terms of the global circulation, the water cycle was connected. The air was, was connected. It was really one uh, metabolic uh, apparatus. And it was really beautiful. Uh, you know, it was kind of like if we have the hubris or the gumption or in Yiddish, the uh, chutzpah to, uh, <laughs> to decide to make the, the world's first mini biosphere, our architect said it's got to be beautiful and it's kind of an homage mm -hmm. to world architecture. And, and people, you know, certainly if they're in the United States, they can go to Arizona and the University of Arizona now owns and operates the facility and take tours, educational tours. But there, there's some resources. There are the two books that, that you mentioned, Pushing Our Limits and the two editions of Life Under Glass, the inside story of Weiser 2. But there's also a, a pretty uh, exciting movie that was released just before COVID called Spaceship Earth that captures some of the backstory of the group that I was describing, the Ecotechnics people, because we had a, an interesting lifestyle. We, we wanted to work on ecology, theater, and enterprise and kind of, you know, live a fairly balanced life. And, and it covers Biosphere 2. So that Spaceship Earth that, you know, is available on streaming services. And also that there are a number of documentaries. There's an Ecotechnics channel on YouTube. And there's one, I think it's called An Architectural Singularity, which has got just a beautiful, you know, no narrative, but a steady cam video tour of the inside of Biosphere 2, because it's hard to visualize. And when I say it, uh, two and a half acres, it's, I think, the size of two soccer fields, you know, in terms of, of footprint. But it was a magnificent world, both with the architecture, step ziggurats and 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 pyramids and, and barrel vaults and the ceilings, you know, in the rainforest. We planned this experiment to last for 100 years. So, you know, the the top of the rainforest is some 25 meters above ground. You know, it was a very spacious world. It wasn't like a claustrophobic world. And, be, and because it was open to sunlight, it was largely sunlight driven, you know, we could see outside. And to our great surprise, Biosphere 2, we, you know, it was a private venture that enabled us to move really rapidly because my institute had had conferences and done these innovative projects. We knew a really great cadre of ecologists and engineers because it was a really large team that designed and and made Biosphere 2 successful. But it was going to be a quiet R&D spot. And then a few magazines, I think it was like European Geo, that as you mentioned, we, of course, like all projects, build a model. They took the Biosphere 2 model out of the building, put it up against the natural backdrop, and it looked for all the world like we'd already built Biosphere 2. And then, and then you know, word got out. And... I think it's sort of tapped into a need that we have. You know, we humans are always questioning, like, who are we? What is the world that we live in? And at the time that we built the project, people could barely spell the word biosphere. Hmm. Literally, literally. 
I know that because the project was called Biosphere 2 and the company, the joint venture behind it, was called Space Biospheres Ventures, and I had to spell that continually. Now everyone can at least spell the word biosphere, although I think the full implications that of living in a biosphere. So we called the crew, as you may or may not know, biospherians. Mm-hmm. We were at Econauts or Bionauts, and we it was a great name. I didn't come up with it, but a, a, somebody working on the project did. Because when you think about it, okay, Oliver, you may be in Catalonia, and I'm here in New Mexico, and our listeners may be in Rio and New York, Tokyo, Beijing, who knows. But we have one thing in common. We are all biospherians of Biosphere One. And what are the implications of that? I think we're just beginning, you know, to find out, you know, and it's kind of like you begin to value something when it's endangered. So, you know, I, I take it as kind of a global wake up call. It's not just global climate change and global climate weirding and all that. It's the overall assault and callousness that modern cultures, modern, if we call them civilizations, you know, the disregard we have for the sanctity of our biosphere, and for heaven's sake, it is our life support system. So when I give talks, I liken, you know, what's been happening with our biosphere is is if, and, and Bucky Fuller, of course, came up with Spaceship Earth. You know, here we are on this beautiful planet that is a spaceship, it's traveling like every object in space, you know, around our sun, our our gal- our solar system is embedded in our, you know, all of, all of that. And here's the crew uh, trying to destructively test our life support system. That's what the assault on the biosphere amounts to. Mm-hmm. So it's really an interesting moment to be alive and to be a biospherian an ex-biospherian, in my case, of Biosphere 2, but a current biospherian of our global biosphere is like, hey, guys, I think we need to rethink how we're operating. You know, there's some, yeah, there, there's something really, really important that we're missing here. And, and it's really simple. And, and, you know, I've had colleagues and I, I finally really got why they don't like the word environment and environmentalist. Because that kind of gives you the illusion that you are here inside your little bubble, you know, your human, you know, bodily form, your human community, your city. And you have the illusion that you're like an independent vector. Yeah. No, you are, you are, every breath of air that you take is a product of the biosphere. Every drop of water has been cleansed and re-cleansed by the bio, you know, it's, it's amazing how metabolically connected we are. Yeah. And even if you even if you're in illusion that you aren't connected, you are. Yeah. Despite it's a, some it's people's a, best efforts of, you know, sitting in front of their screens at home and rarely going outside, it doesn't disconnect you. It just creates a larger barrier of illusion of disconnection, which is often serving to remove us from the consciousness necessary to participate in this more actively uh, as we all should. 
And so this yeah. strikes me as a really profound insight that you've gained, not only through your work, but through your observations, just, you know, as a biospherian of, of Biosphere One, right? Um, I'm curious as to this experience, not only in your studies and your research with the biosphere itself, but um, in your work afterwards too, what have been some of your biggest learnings and takeaways in working with this from an engineering perspective of how material, how resources cycle within the biosphere? Well, it's a, I mean, it's a huge question, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, kind of one of the reasons that I like wastewater gardens and, and you know, was in, uh, motivated to get involved in it is because what I felt, you know, and I, you know, I was a good tree hugger, uh, you know, for a city boy uh, for 20 years before going into Biosphere 2. But Biosphere 2 kind of really got me, as as you're mentioning, I think we're all in illusion if we're not aware of our connection with the Biosphere. I mean, we're literally, you know, sleepwalking and in a fantasy because the reality is that as it's been, you know, for every human generation, but previous human generations lived closer to nature. And, you know, all of the ancient religions and belief systems kind of started with the premise that the earth is sacred and the connection of, of people who, you know, were farmers, were hunter-gatherers, whatever. You know, it was really clear. I mean, it's only in our technocratic and highly urbanized world that people, you know, can even harbor this illusion. Uh, I love it. I found out some years ago that in Japan, it's a widely practiced uh, type of therapy is to go and spend time in a forest. Mm, forest bathing, yeah. Forest healing. And, and, you know, I can relate to that. I mean, I grew up in Queens with some beautiful parks. And, you know, just picture your city and your favorite city park and what a difference it makes to be, you know, in the in the embrace, so to speak, of trees and running water and, you know, beautiful breezes and all that. So, you know, scientifically, you know, I did know that I wanted to do these systems because they connect people, you know, and they get them out of the illusion that water mysteriously comes when you open up a tap or a shower or yeah. whatever. And, you know, it just disappears into the void when you flush it down a, a drain or or pull the chain on on your uh, toilet. You know, this is part of the reality. And if you have a beautiful constructed wetland that you go out and my God, you know, I've just flushed the toilet and OK, it may go through a septic tank. We're not all that geared to love, which we should. The microbes that keep our sure operating. But we're sure, you know. Every human being, unless they're seriously damaged, loves plants. You know, they speak to us, you know, the flowers, the forms, you know, uh, even forgetting the fact that they're producing our oxygen. So I really wanted to connect people with that. And I, I needed to get the tools. So I, I uh, did a master's in watershed ecology at the University of Arizona and then happily, uh, we had gotten to know two of the great system ecologists, Eugene Odom and Howard T. Odom. And I went with H.T. Uh, Odom uh, at the University of, Ar of Florida and did a Ph.D. in environmental engineering. And for that Ph.D., my dissertation 
was kind of a nice karmic payback. We had collected the coral reef for Biosphere 2 uh, down in the Yucatan Peninsula off a little town called Akamal, maybe an hour and a half or two hours from Cancun. And uh, so I went down there because I knew, you know, from talking to the people we met, that there was no sewage treatment. There's a beautiful coral reef and there's limestone. And all of the pollution that was created by wastewater was impacting those coral reefs. So we started by doing, and I think we wound up doing about 20 systems for houses, businesses, and hotels in Akamal. And then, you know, the great fun I've had over the, the succeeding decades is taking these systems to new countries. And that sharpens, you're asking about what you learn well, you know, among the, the, you know, because it's a natural system, you know, your choice of plants is dictated by the local climate, the amount of rainfall, the extreme heat, the extreme cold, you know, so you're designing systems that are adapted to that. And also, uh, as we kind of remember from our high school biology, every 10 degrees of increase of temperature, like life goes twice as fast. Mm. is in tropical and warm climates, you can make your wastewater gardens far smaller than you do in cold climates. And and we've done systems. I have colleagues in a branch of wastewater gardens, even in Poland, in the Carpathian Mountains. So, you know, they're beautiful systems. And I've learned so much about the types of wetland plants that make these systems go, because now we've worked in 14 countries around the world. So... Going back to when you were studying this, before you started to do projects out in the field, what were your inspirations? Where did you draw information and ideas from when creating these constructed wetlands and wastewater gardens? Because as a concept, this has existed for a long time. I mean, people didn't have flushable toilets and septic systems very far back. And this has been incorporated into peripheries of population zones around houses and such in previous times. Where did you draw your inspiration from? Well, you know, as, as you say it, you know, the modern flush toilet is a re relatively recent invention. And it's kind of interesting. You know, we, we sometimes talk, and I love the word paradigm. Maybe it's overused. But a paradigm is kind of the perspective that you bring to something. And, you know, so you have to envision how nasty you know, as cities got larger and larger and there was no sewage treatment uh, system, you know, pigs were cleaning up a lot of the waste and yeah. shit in New York City into the, you know, first uh, decade of the 20th century. Well, you know, the, the, the people who invented the centralized sewage treatment plant, you know, they were motivated by the, the current paradigm was centralized like factories. So a sewage treatment plant is like a centralized factory for detoxifying because, you know, sewage is dangerous. It can carry diseases as well as doing environmental damage. In fact, you know, a, a lot of people in the West don't realize that untreated sewage and the sewage contamination of potable water causes probably more death than any other single factor on the planet. Yeah. It's really, really sad because it hits poor people and the young children die of diarrhea because they get dehydrated. Because Anyway, 
Yeah, so, yeah, no, I mean, all throughout history, plagues and pandemics often came from improper treatment of waste and water. Right, right. So, so you know, I mean, I don't condemn, but but they were working with the paradigm only to think about uh, wastewater sewage as a danger, as a pathogen spreader. Yeah. They weren't considering, and, and you know, so getting it away from people, whatever, whatever it costs, you know, all that pumping and 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 uh, pipelines and whatnot uh you know to to make it safe but they weren't realizing and i actually got my degree at the university of arizona in a wonderful school since renamed but it was, it was called the school of renewable natural resources and when you think about it if you're going to have people anywhere you know we're going to be eating and we are going to be you know delivering that that product out the other ends so it's a it's a renewable natural resource, and especially in the world facing water scarcity, you know, sewage treatment plants and and your flush toilet are using fresh water. So to throw that away and dump, you know, at the end of all of that expense at a sewage treatment plant, just to dump that water into the ocean, or you know, back into aquifers or or rivers, is just such a waste and it's not doing anything productive with that. So, you know, constructed wetland, my inspiration really is it's a change, it's a paradigm change. And and even the, you know, it's a shameful word, wastewater. Yeah. You know, it's right embedded. Why are we wasting water? And it's not only the water, it's the perfect fertilizer. Hmm. You know, uh, we're, you know, humans are so well designed that our waste products are incredible fertilizers, you know, for plants and soil microbes and everyone to, one, to digest and make use of and in process uh, detoxify. So it's a total paradigm change. And we were really, you know, among my inspirations, and I'll do a tip of the hat to this wonderful visionary scientist who is working in a NASA center, Billy Wolverton. Billy Wolverton, you know, at this uh, center in Mississippi, had uh, convinced the uh, director of the center because they they did rocket fuels and built the external tank of the space shuttle. They had all this really nasty industrial wastewater that rather than spending millions and millions of dollars on some technocratic chemical treatment, just give give Billy ten or twenty thousand dollars, and he will build these constructed wetlands. And wetland plants not only can make use of of domestic wastewater, but they can take heavy metals and chemical pollution out of the water. So, so we enlisted him to help us design the sewage treatment system for Biosphere Two. He's also famous, by the way, because. He did pioneering work on how plants take out air pollution from indoor spaces. And the fact that you see the spider plant in, like, it, it's a cliche here in the United States in every restaurant you go yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. And they're beautiful plants. But, you know, Billy, I think, originally uh, checked 15 or 20 plants. And the spider plant was one of the star all plants take out. Uh, things from the atmosphere and their uh, their soils also help. Any, anyway, so you know, Billy, you know, working with Billy Wolverton, who is uh, was a great inspiration. 
Yeah, so let's go into some of the technical aspects of creating a wastewater garden now. What are some of the important, let's say, uh, defining features or the components that are necessary to make one of these function well? Yeah, I mean, you can think of it schematically as having three stages. So you've, you know, you need to analyze how much wastewater am I getting and what are the concentrations of it, right? So, and, and then you're looking at in this environment to what standard do we need it cleaned? Yeah. So one way or another, uh, you're going to have primary treatment, which separates the solids and starts letting microbes digest them. So you want to, you know, make all of the sewage go through primary treatment and become liquid to where it can go through the constructed wetland. Is this and removing or dissolving solid matter then? Well, it, it's actually digesting them. So, you know, your famous septic tank and for larger systems that they have different iterations of it. But basically it's an anaerobic chamber where you can let the wastewater sit for at least one day, but I like to design it for two, three or four day residence time because the more complete that primary digestion is, the better the, the later components work. And then you go to your second stage and that's you know the constructed wetland, the wastewater garden itself. And we wanna you know, contain that now, now it's only been preliminarily treated. It's still got, you know, lots of organic matter, lots of nutrients and lots of math, uh, pathogens, et cetera. They've been reduced somewhat. So you want to seal it. And, you know, we use either like you're making a water garden, a geomembrane, uh, EPDM that Firestone makes is a really uh, nice one to work with. Or in countries where I've worked where uh, labor costs are really low and you don't want to be importing materials like in Mexico and Bali and some other places, we've actually, in Algeria, we actually make that um, seal with concrete. <laughs> I, I remember having to explain to our contractors, we're making a new kind of swimming pool. Mm -hmm. It's not gonna be for people bathing, it's a swimming pool that we can hold the sewage in. So it's gotta be watertight. And then uh, we fill it up with gravel, you know, whatever the locally available uh, thing is. And then only it, the only soil that goes into it is what is around the root balls of the plants that you put in that are adapted to the climate. So in a way, it's almost like hydroponics. And that, as I was mentioning before, the beauty of animal wastes is that they are loaded with nitrogen and phosphorus and all these good organic matters that both the the root zone of the plants and the plants themselves flourish on. So it's, you know, the plants in a constructed wetland in a wastewater garden, they kind of like are really growing rapidly because they've got everything they need, plenty of water, plenty of nutrients. And this was the big jump that I made. In ordinary thinking, and it's really sad, even if you go and see a constructed wetland, they tend to be monocultures, so they're sometimes called reed beds. Mm -hmm. They might have one or two types of wetland plants. 
in almost all cases, after the constructed wetland itself, they just discharge the water. And because we started working along that very solid limestone, you know, geology, Yucatan coast with a coral reef offshore, we realized that we couldn't just throw away that water because that water still has nutrients. So that was the big jump that I made, you know, conceptually is what we're trying to do is not just detoxify and make beautiful gardens and all that stuff with the constructed wetland. We're trying to use as close to 100% of that water and its nutrients. And, you know, after the constructed wetland, you know, then we do kind of ecoscaping using that, the water with all its nutrients to create even more greenery. And it not only is productive use of the wastewater, but it means that less of those nutrients are going to go either into the coastal environment or into groundwater, et cetera. So, yeah, it was kind of, so that, that's the third stage. And the beautiful thing is in the constructed wetland, in the wastewater garden, you do have to use wetland adapted plants. We've done a lot of creative investigations and more plants than you'd think can actually thrive there. But in the final stage, you can do anything. And, you know, one of our projects, for example, in Poland, at a research facility that the university had in the mountains, after our septic tank wastewater garden, that water was led into an existing apple orchard. And so those fruit trees are benefiting from more water and the nutrients they carry. So you can be really creative in it, but, you know, total reuse of the water and now given, you know, so there's the greenhouse gases that it costs so much less greenhouse emissions to build a wastewater garden because they're natural. They last for decades and decades and decades. And the really sad thing about these highly technical sewage treatment plants is if you get 15 or 20 years of, of operation, you're you're lucky, hmm. uh, you know, so they last much longer. And they are creating landscape and greenery. You can put harvestable plants into the wastewater garden and into that final third stage that you can harvest flowers, wood, weaving materials, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so you're also getting direct benefit instead of it being a cost. And and they're up, the, you know, the real selling point and why constructed wetlands are spreading around the planet is that the operating costs are like five or 10 percent that of a highly technical system. So you have, you know, you're saving greenhouse gases in that longevity as well. That's incredible. And so what are all of the different applications in which these wastewater gardens can be applied? We're talking about replacements for septic systems. Are there others that you've pioneered? Well, they're not a replacement for a septic system. A septic system, you know, is a good technology if people don't abuse it. Septic tanks, you know, get destroyed because people are dumping chemicals unthinkingly down their drains. Ah, uh, sure. Which are, <laughs> so this is more of an add-on to the effluent flow afterwards. Yeah, ex ex exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, the beauty of constructed wetlands is, you can, as I was mentioning with the Billy Wolverton NASA uh, explanation, 
You can use it for industrial uh, wastewater treatment. You can do it for agribusiness. Uh, you know, if it's a concentrated, you know, dairy or piggery or whatever, or a processing plant. And sometimes, you know, you a wastewater garden is not the be all and end all and cure all. Uh, so it might be part of a chain of treatment. But if you can use constructed wetlands because of their low cost of, of construction and long life and low cost of operation, your entire stream is, is way down. So, you know, so I haven't personally done it, but there's huge literature about mining waste that constructed wetlands are an interface so the discharge from mining operations aren't harmful. So, you know, the applications are as varied as the types of, in you know, waste. Domestic waste is almost the easiest, but, you know, mm -hmm. in cities now, you know, and it's kind of a pity that we set up our engineering, our infrastructure that way. The industries that are within cities often just discharge their waste into the, the shared sewage system. So the nice thing about these natural systems, like those air purifiers using plants and soils, whatever the pollutants are in the air, the microbial population that can deal with it will increase. Well, the same, you know, you and you and this isn't like you go to the store and you have to buy different microbes. <laughs> we live in a world that is so microbially diverse. Uh, as I was mentioning, the microbes are probably the real champions who keep the biosphere operating. We're starting to learn that right now. Now we talk about the the inner microbial biome that you know makes us. Sure even human organisms operate. Same thing with the wastewater garden. The beauty about constructed wetlands is that in that root zone, whatever the waste products have, the microbes that can deal with it, and, and a constructed wetland is both anaerobic and aerobic. You know, that's the magic of wetland plants is they're pumping oxygen through their root system and creating really micro zones of aerobic bacteria. So, you know, it's a com really complex factory. Again, it's it's the kind of thing that if you like, you know, hired a bunch of expensive engineers and you gave them, you know, you can you can go online and, and buy the right microbes, you know, the cost of humans re replicating what nature is doing would be really formidable. And, and we've gained an appreciation, you know, sometimes uh, it's called a nature protectors or, you know, exaggerate. Mm -hmm. But this idea that wetlands are the kidneys of the planet is actually really rate, uh, based in, in real science and real knowledge. And that's why wetlands, you know, are on the, the sides of rivers and in coastal regions. And they have a great ability to detoxify the water that they're in. They're, they're also, we've now discovered wetlands are even better carbon um, sinks than rainforests, mm. you know, per acre, per acre wet, you know, so the protection of wetlands, which is also dear to my heart. I, I worked in, uh, at the University of, of Florida at their center for wetlands and we got to, you know, Florida is as flat as a pancake. And if you have the depression six inches deep, you have a wetland. <laughs> it's 
really remarkable. Remark. So, you know, I've been in, in wetlands of all kinds and totally fell in love with them. Mm-hmm. You know, wetlands are pretty formidable. And and what I love about wastewater gardens is just like we had a human design biosphere, you know, you have the engineer working to figure out, okay, how much wastewater, how concentrated is it? How clean do we need to get it, you know, through its process? You have the engineer working, but they're basically the tools are what nature has perfected over billions of years. Well, so what have you seen as the limitations then of what can go through a wastewater garden as far as chemicals or other inputs that may test the limits of what can be biologically broken down? Are there kind of parameters or things that you would not recommend filtering this way? You know, you know, because it's a living system, you know, if the if the waste is too concentrated, then then plants and microbes aren't going to be able. So sometimes you even you may have to have a preliminary step to, you know, to dilute the material before it goes in. And, and, you know, nothing is perfect. And also uh, if you're using the constructed wetland, for example, to take heavy metals out of some industrial waste stream, then you need to think about what are you going to do, you know, with that plant material? Because that concentrates plant material, in the plant body, yeah. Yeah, it you know the plants concentrate them. Well, you could then dilute it further by maybe composting it, but you need to be careful about that. And I, I, you know, like everything, we don't know everything about what constructed wetlands can do. And I'm not up on. You know, it's a great fear in cities that some new pathogens, you know, are not totally. Uh, killed by you know by constructed wetlands or by even conventional sewage treatment plants i think that's why at the end of those systems they throw in chlorine or uh, ozone to to basically sterilize it i i hate doing that because that's a pretty expensive thing and if you're dealing with domestic sewage you know just from houses just from toilets and showers and laundries you're not dealing with that kind of concentrate. But, you know, like everything, there's limits. You may have to pre-treat it and you may have to have further steps, perhaps, you know, I mean, maybe mining of the future, you know, will find a way to, if you've taken all the titanium and lead and whatever out of the waste stream, maybe we can reclaim it and put it to productive use. I, I think there are people actually working with microbes that, can make vitamins and concentrate uh, useful products. So, yeah, yeah there, it's wild there are limits. Coming out now. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a wild thing. But, but you know, I do I do have to emphasize, and and we, you know, the nice thing about taking this technology to new countries is that you know, because it is kind of a foreign object to a lot of health officials, they require, and I like to do research to see how the systems are going. And we tend to get 99 or 99.8% reduction of fecal coliforms, which is kind of a, you know, a generic for what are they doing to p- potential pathogens? Yeah. But you're not going to drink it, even if it has 0.001%, you know, of what it originally had. Sure. So I'm not designing it differently if the objective was to produce potable water through these systems, but this isn't the main objective of 
the gardens in and of themselves. That might be a later stage filtration. Yeah, you know, and, and I know people are doing that and the water crunch is hitting, you know, a lot of places in the world. I'm not against it. it it's just that it that requires a whole other set of procedures which cost you know both uh, energy you know machinery and 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 capital to create those things um i mean my feeling is that there is so much uh water that is wasted that if we just start conserving water intelligently including you you imagine you know at least in, in the United States, 50% of the potable water gets used for watering outside plants. And that is just insane. You know, uh, so so I'm very sympathetic. And when I left Florida, there was a couple of cities that were starting to take the outflow, the treated wastewater from sewage treatment plants, put them in an infrastructure, maybe with different colored pipes you know so the brown pipes you know are recycled water you know so you know the the you know so much of what we do on the planet is just insane is totally insane why you take potable water and then like water your garden with it when it doesn't you know it's potable because they have taken all the nutrients out of it you know wastewater is perfect for that and it costs less energy to use it for that purpose. So, you know, in a way you could think of that third stage I was describing in the wastewater garden as that's our, you know, recycled water now feeding plants. Yeah. And it's so much better than potable water because we don't have to go out and buy fertilizer. The fertilizer has been sent by yeah, the people absolutely. who are using the system. Yeah. It is, it is really bizarre how much energy we put into potable water and what most of it gets used for to say nothing about, you know, flushing it down a toilet to begin with. Now, right. you have mentioned throughout this discussion very briefly some of the other projects that you have set up around the world, a long list of countries that we could go through. I'm wondering if perhaps we could pick one uh, of your choice that we could break down into how you started to plan it and kind of how it has developed over time. Well, you know, of course, the one that's really hot on my uh, radar right now is our modest product project in southern Iraq. It's co it's called the Eden in Iraq project, and there's a website if you Google Eden in Iraq. But it, uh, it it's designed for uh, treating the waste of a really unique culture, the Marsh Arabs who've lived, uh, you know, they've lived in the area very very harmoniously with one of the largest what was originally one of the largest marshlands in the world and they build their buildings out of the reeds they have their uh, water buffalo that graze on the reeds and they you know they get their milk from from them it's beautiful beautiful culture but no again no sewage treatment and now that the marsh arabs are living in cities you know it's really sad the the waste from their houses and and businesses are just flowing into this is the the also the cradle of civilization between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. So now that waste is going into the Euphrates and polluting the marshes, which are under a lot of threat from climate change and from pollution and upstream water diversion. So the Eden and Iraq project is a fairly large scale for me. Uh, 
and my team, it's a six and a half acre, two and a half hectare uh, area that will have pre-treatment, a open water uh, marsh of vegetation that that's already been constructed and we're doing fundraising for the rest of the project. But this will treat the waste of eight, eight to 10,000 people in the largest city uh, in Iraq. So we have been working with our Iraqi partners from Nature Iraq, which is the first environmental NGO in, in that country. And they've succeeded in getting the marshes declared Iraq's first national park. And what's really wonderful is that, you know, I've been there three times and my team continue to go there, is we've done workshops with engineers and ecologists in the Iraqi government at all levels, from provincial to state to uh, to national, educating about this. And the water minister, you know, devoted the resources to, to create the first part of this treatment system. And when he did the ribbon cutting, it was also a surprise to us, he got the lesson really well because he said this should be the beginning of many of these wastewater gardens throughout the country. And even big cities like Baghdad, they have what looks like a functioning sewage treatment plant. But as I saw a lot in my travels in, in the wonderful world of shit treatment, so I should give a plug to waste the wastewater gardener, uh, preserving the planet one flush at a time. I love that subtitle. Yeah. Uh, which is the book I wrote in 2014. Yeah, you know, the adventures I've had going around the world is it's really sad. Uh, even when communities have built these high-tech systems, they often don't have the resources to keep changing parts and the technicians to, you know, keep them going. So, you know, even big cities in Iraq don't have effective sewage treatment. So he cut the ribbon on the Eden and Iraq project and said, and he listed eight other sites where he wanted to see wastewater gardens going. So we're in dialogue with the United Nations World Food Program because you can very easily tie wastewater gardens into production of crops. That yes. third stage could be, you know, maybe you make the wastewater garden even smaller because you don't want to take take away the nutrients. Sure. You want, you know, to have them available to. So there are all kinds of beautiful permutations that you can do. Yeah. And as you're mentioning too, you know, I, I think it's kind of crazy to have flush toilets, but the, the infrastructure in a lot of the world is that way. So this is how you can make the, those kind of a bad idea really <laughs> uh, better. But, you know, uh, new ways of, of directly separating your waste from water, composting toilets and the rest of it, or just simply collecting that material and then composting it to detoxify it and, and make it available for for plants is, is so much a better way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think they've calculated if everybody in the world had a flush toilet and tried to flush their toilets, we don't have enough water. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredibly. So, so I, I, and though there are all our alternatives, it's good to know that there are retrofits or add-ons that you can put to an existing system to at least recover the value, both in nutrient and water, on the end. 
Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, personally, you know, let's go back to the Biosphere thing of being connected. You know, the really amazing thing about two years inside Biosphere 2 is that it was continually a bodily knowledge that you had because you could you could walk around that system in 15 minutes and literally see all the plants that, you know, are keeping you alive is I love it when we put in systems and then people fall in love with their wastewater gardens. And then it becomes a very personal thing. And, you know, I remember there was an Italian restaurant down in, in the Mexican coast, actually now the fashionable town of Tulum. And the guy was like, oh, I need to clean my my oven. He was on the phone. And I'm really afraid that my oven cleaner is going to damage, you know, the, the beautiful wastewater garden that I have. You know, so connecting people with the reality of where their water comes from and where the water that they've made use of is going that's to me like the icing on the cake you know yeah yeah if it we're really creates a connection we... with the entirety of a cycle rather than seeing right. it as a linear thing that gets solved by somebody else and isn't part of what you're involved with yeah you know I, you know at the end of wastewater garden i came up with the the fecosphere <laughs> the fecosphere meditation which is, you know, on whatever a composting toilet or flush toilet, when you're sitting there, you know, let, let's contemplate where is the water come that I'm going to flush this toilet with and where's it going to go? I mean, you know, I think every city resident should go make a trip to their sewage treatment plant, you know, yeah. and actually discover, discover that, you know, since I did my master's in University of Arizona, I was by... I was in the city of Tucson, and they have two centralized sewage treatment plants. And the only, you know, 24-hour, you know, 12-month-a-year rivers that flow in Tucson are largely effluent from the sewage treatment plant. No kidding. No kidding. And so these shit rivers, especially in arid regions, (laughs) are a whole other phenomena and you look at that whole system and you're thinking, what value are we getting aside from detoxifying it and keep, you know, I mean, in, in the case of Tucson, they're pumping the water 15 and 20 miles yeah, with really elaborate pump stations, which leak and are polluting the, the ground. Yeah. Anyway, you know, getting connected to even a little piece of the biospheric reality that that you inhabit is so interesting. You know, I mean, I think, you know, starting to get grounded and learning even the little bit, you know, we all know those, those, uh, those diagrams of the global water cycle, mm-hmm. but I love one is that, you know, the ones that I'd learned, you know, didn't actually even show humans and factories and cities. Right. But even if you see a more updated one, like, where do I stand in it? What does my city do, my town? What happens, you know, when we started doing those systems in Mexico, and I, I've seen this around the world, people don't even know where their septic tank is. Yeah. And in Mexico, we've discovered, like we have in many developing countries, there are no bottoms to the septic tanks. Ah, That's sure. why we did it. Yeah. Yeah. They're basically in dry that, wells, yeah. We don't even need to pump it out because it's flowing out into, in this case, the coral reef. Yeah. And then we're the out there. And, 
Yeah, and then we're out there. We heard these stories about brown trout. It took me a while to figure out what they were talking about. But, you know, since ecotourism and, and snorkeling and diving are big, you know, big uh, draws, yeah, you're swimming with the fact that, you know, septic tanks didn't have it. So we would have to start with where is your septic tank? Is it big enough for your house? And let's seal it as yeah. a starter. Yeah. <laughs> Wild. Um, so let's go into some of the practical considerations for someone considering adding a wastewater garden to an existing septic system. And I can give real experience from this because it's something I'm considering doing for my house right now. Right. Where would I start in getting the necessary information to start creating a design? And what are some key considerations when putting one in? Yeah, I mean, you know, as I was mentioning, you need to figure out, well, how many people are living there? What's the water use? Uh, if you have a septic tank, you know, you could pump it out and then measure how quickly it refills or just use some rule of thumbs, you know, of the type of lifestyle you're living. And the nice thing about, you know, these constructed wetlands is they're pretty uh, flexible. The fact that you have a dinner party, you know, once in, once in a month or whatever, doesn't mean that you have to double the size of your wastewater garden, just like a hotel. We like to find out what's peak uh, occupancy, what are the sure. slow times, figure out, you know, so you need to do calculations of how much water you've got. Is your septic tank adequate? Is it well sealed? Maybe put a filter on the back of it because that improves the functioning of the septic tank. It's now obligatory in new septic tank systems in, in the United States and I think Europe and elsewhere. Uh, and then, you know, where could I buy you? I hate machinery, frankly, <laughs> even though I have engineering in my degree, I'm more an oncologist. I hate having to put in pumps. So is there any way that we could find an area that by gravity flow, we can put a constructed wetland in? And so often to do that, it's worth it to have a slightly sunken garden rather than having to put a pump, which is going to be an electrical cost and, you know, sooner or later you're gonna to have to replace it where can i take it and and what you know what do i want the constructed wetland to look like so in some cases you can design long and narrow ones and they can become kind of a privacy barrier uh you know or shading other parts of your backyard etc but you need to you know and those areas need to be in fairly full sunlight so is that is that possible or you know are some trees going to have to be trimmed you know so you go through the process of where are you going to locate it depending on the initial calculations of how much water you're dealing with and then there are some you know just straight up engineering you're going to need to find out in that soil as this is especially for the third stage how quickly does water get absorbed in that soil because we, the, what we really want to avoid is any of that wastewater surfacing because then, then there's odor, there's accidental contact that you, that you need to worry about. So you have to do some permeability studies. Uh, they may be available because probably other, other uh, hydrologists and engineers have looked at soils in your area. So there's a big difference if it's a sandy soil 
then water goes goes through quite rapidly here you know in new mexico we have a lot of very heavy clay soils so that will affect the sizing as well of the wastewater garden and the third stage but it's it's not rocket science it's fairly simple calculations there are simple ways you know it's kind of fun you know get yourself back into your five-year-old mind you can take some of your soil and get it wet and if it's a clay soil you can make little cute ribbons out of it if it falls apart then you know you have loam or sandy soils yeah so i mean there's some you know fairly simple simple you know ways that you can do these calculations and like you're and then no sorry go ahead continue yeah, I, I just wanted to throw out there that also, you know, the, the really elegant thing is if you have a number of houses that are close to each other, that maybe you create one wastewater garden and run, hopefully by gravity flow, a cluster of houses to one, to one shared wastewater garden. Yeah, yeah and it becomes, and it becomes, yeah, it makes it cheaper for everyone. And then, you know, since these are beautiful you know, yeah, I should say that about the Eden and Iraq project. This isn't going to be like that nasty, smelly sewage treatment plant that you will find in the poor part of the town. And and I remember when I was looking as a student to rent a house in Tucson, there were ones that were really inexpensive. And then I realized they're downwind from the sewage treatment plant. Yeah. But, you know, so when you make a wastewater garden, you're creating a beautiful park, a garden yeah. that, you know, is going to be, you know, so in Eden, Iraq, for example, we have beautiful pathways. You know, it's going to be an homage to marsh culture. We're going to have shade structures and we're going to do a kind of classical image in Islam. They have a beautiful image of the world as four rivers that come together. Mm. So you, you can also really make your systems artistic. I should give a shout out in Algeria, and we were influenced by an artist that shows at the October Gallery, which is the Ecotechnics Project in London. Uh, and he suggested, let's make the wastewater garden in the shape of a crescent moon. Mm -hmm. And it's really beautiful. I mean, even from satellite imagery, you can see our wastewater garden in this Algerian town. And, you know, because that's a, that's a culturally significant uh islamic symbol yeah and it worked perfectly hydro hydrologically so i kind of love that when you can make things we we did a system for the indonesian uh the equivalent of the environmental protection agency and they suggested it and it worked hydro you know for the the water treatment we made their wastewater garden in the shape of a fish oh, amazing so they're you know they're really fun things you can do with it that's always important to mention that, you know, you can go beyond the mere function of something and really create a focal point for imitation and inspiration beyond just what it can do for the environment. Yeah, you know, it, I, I should also mention, just like Biosphere 2 started out as a quiet R&D place and then the world got excited and, and we reached so many hundreds of millions of people. In Akamal, where, that town in the Yucatan where we started doing these systems, our systems, you know, started to be replicated because they were the best looking gardens in town. Mm. You know, the water, the the town water supply is somewhat saline and there's a lot of salt breeze from the ocean. And so, you know, we, we had those, you know, all kinds of beautiful tropical plants 
banana trees, papayas, canna lilies, you know, in, in the gardens. Um, the entire family of uh, um, bird of paradise, mm -hmm. the heliconias work in wastewater gardens. So you can make them really, really beautiful. And of course you want to. Yeah. You know, so it's like the uh, since the paradigm has changed and we're not going to hide the sewage treatment somewhere, yeah. it's actually going to be a feature and it's going to make you feel so good. You know, you know, the really funny thing is that, you know, we did we did a series of nine for a eco tourism facility and the people just loved the idea, you know, and it was like. You know, don't hold it in. Don't wait to go to the bathroom when you get back to your hotel. You know, use the <laughs> restaurant bathroom and then look outside and all those plants are enjoying the fact that you're feeding them. Yeah. yeah and then, then you're going to go snorkeling and you're not going to run into brown trout. I mean, how good a picture is that? Absolutely. There's all sorts of stories that you can tell with this as well. And incentivize engagement, you know, in the simplest way, like using the bathroom at the facility, but also giving the inspiration to explore and interact with, identify plants, maybe understand what can be grown through here. How can you can cycle the nutrients back into your food supply system? And then, like you said, the cultural elements and the beauty of the garden, it's, it's really endless. Thank, thank you, Alva, because actually I should have mentioned that. And we've done projects, and I love doing these projects for schools because then they become an outdoor um, classroom. Mm. And we did one project uh, working with the Mangrove Action Project, which is a great organization protecting mangroves around the planet. And this was in uh, an island in Indonesia, and the Indonesian mangroves are really botanically rich. There's a lot more variety there. I, thought I loved mangrove systems anyway. So we actually, uh, just to make it a classroom, we put mangrove species into that wastewater garden. So they can, you can also show you know, people, here are those plants that you take for granted down there in the mangrove mm. and see how beautiful they are. And they're also doing this great job of cleaning the sewage from, you know, from this facility. It was a bamboo processing facility that we did that. So, so yeah, you can use these as kind of education of, you could make them all native um, wetland species from your state or region. So yeah. they become also that, you know, yeah. Fantastic. And so I had one technical question too, that I was thinking about, because a lot of what we've been mentioning right now is, uh, these really vibrant garden type systems, I assume mostly in warmer climates, but you did also mention the project you're doing in Poland, where I assume there's a good portion of the winter where it's frozen and not photosynthesizing. How do you design for that inevitability of the climate and make sure that it can still be used and still work when it's in the off season, when it's in the winter? Yeah, you know, and, you know, if you check the literature, there, there are constructed wetland systems that operate perfectly well in Canada, in Minnesota, and, you know, in really cold climates. We've done a few projects in Spain, actually, and in, in France, where, you know, there's a winter not as severe as that. It, it, it went back to that idea that I was saying in cold climates, you need to make the systems bigger, sometimes twice as big as you would in a tropical area. And very curiously, you know, when the ground is frozen, well, one is you have gravel, you don't have soil. 
If there's a snow cover or an ice covering over it, the sewage treatment actually happens better because it's an insulation. And mm -hmm. the water the water that comes out of houses and buildings is unfrozen. So these systems, even when it appears, even when the plants are dormant and there's snow on the ground, the microbes are still working. And, you know, so, so these systems in northern regions, if they're designed properly, will meet standards even during the winter months. Okay, brilliant. It's just something that you design in for that inevitability. Yeah. No, I mean, that's part of your initial analysis is what's the climate here? Yeah. Which includes, you know, both, okay, how, how hot does it get here in southern Iraq? It gets really bloody hot. Yeah. And how cold is how cold does it get? You know, and if you're doing a system in Alaska or in Poland or in the mountains anywhere. Yeah. So these, these are like the, you know, this is part of the engineering. And I, I should give a shout out. Uh, and H.T. Odom was is considered the father. But there's a wonderful emerging field called ecological engineering. And Biosphere 2 is a great example of an ecologically engineered facility, but there are these technologies and constructed wetlands are a great example of them that use engineering, you know, to properly design the system for local conditions, but they're ecological in that the main functioning is done by natural mechanisms. So what the plants are doing would cost millions of dollars, you know, in a sewage treatment plant, but the but but those microbes don't need, you know, we don't they don't turn in a timesheet at the end of the week and say pay me, <laughs> pay me overtime for working on the weekends. So That's ecological great. engineering, you know that, and it's starting to be recognized as an academic discipline. And to my mind, you know, the reason Biosphere Two worked is that we got you know really top engineers. Uh, excited to work on the project and top ecologists. And then they had to learn how to speak to each other mm. and to find a common language, which was really an interesting process to be part of. But that's the kind of thinking that we need really in, in rising to our, really our the biospheric challenge we have, which is put very simply, how can we live really satisfying, complete human lives without harming and sustaining, regenerating our biosphere. Yeah, yeah. Marvelous, well look, we've covered a lot of ground here so far and you've mentioned a lot of the organizations that you work directly with and that you've collaborated with in the past. Can you tell me how listeners who are interested to learn more and maybe even start a project like this themselves can find some of your resources and maybe even get in touch directly? Sure. I mean, you know, there and and maybe you could list. I'll, I'll send you a list of links to to post. But uh, Institute of Ecotechnics is kind of simple. Ecotechnics.edu. There is a website for wastewater gardens. Wastewatergardens.com. Eden in Iraq has a website. Um, Synergetic Press, which publishes some of my books. SynergeticPress.com, and and you know for a, a deeper dive, I I should say since we're mostly talking about wastewater gardens, I had so much fun both doing the research and travel and and exploration of the world, the wonderful world of of shit and how it's <laughs> treated and and misused on the planet. It's going to be the 
the funniest book that that you've ever read about the subject. And and you mentioned, and thank you for mentioning that, the two books that I've written, one solo, Pushing Our Limits, uh, Insights from Bias Roots 2, University of Arizona Press. And then now there's two editions of Life Under Glass. And I was happy to write that with two of my teammates, two other Biospherians. That that's available through Synergetic Press. And and you know, welcome to the wonderful world of of shit and biospherics. <laughs> And, and all you know, the potential within it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and isn't it wonderful? If you listen to this podcast, you've learned what Biosphere 1 is, a little <laughs> yeah. bit about Biosphere 2, and you discovered you are a Biospherian. Now Hopefully we all that's have an empowering act- message. I certainly feel it. And it's something that has really guided a lot of my inspiration, not only in this podcast, but my work outside as well, and is informing yeah. a big part of the direction that I'm taking my own farm in here and all of the work with water that is involved with that. Yeah, it's kind of like we are born as biospherians, but we can, if we understand that and start to understand the implications of it, that's kind of a beautiful, and you know, everyone's looking for meaning in their life. Well, you know, start to really contemplate that you're a biospherian and you can make, you are making a difference. And how could you more intelligently, consciously, joyfully make a difference to you, your circle, and the part of the biosphere that you impact. Uh, It's a wonderful message for us here. Mark, I want to thank you so much for your time and for all of those resources that you listed, which I'll link to on the show notes for this episode. And I look forward to being in touch in the future. Maybe I'll reach out when I start this project of my own wastewater garden, hopefully in a year or two here. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking with you, Oliver. It's been a pleasure. Thanks once again to Mark. You can find the links to his various companies and organizations, as well as his books, at the show notes on this episode and on the Synergetic Press website. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.